By entering the small gate to the narrow way leading to life, sounds a lot like Psalm 1. And in the final analysis, the person who refuses to do that, who refuses to get off the broad way and enter the narrow way, will not be included with God's people. Again, sounds a lot like Psalm 1. He won't stand in the judgment, the words of Psalm 1. Jesus simply says he'll be like a rotten tree, not like, like a well-watered tree bearing fruit in season, but like a rotten tree that men cut down and cast into the fire. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound amusing at all, does it? What happens if a whole nation chooses not to submit to God's law, to his rule, to his authority? Well, that's what Psalm 2 is about. It's not about an individual, but on the heels of Psalm 1, where it contrasts two individuals, this talks about whole people groups, whole nations. On a cosmic scale, revolt, rebelling against God, and where that leads, and it's in that context in Psalm 2 that God is said to laugh. In the very first verse, the poet writes, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples, plural, imagining or devising a vain thing? It's always been God's desire that his creatures submit to his authority. But from the very beginning, almost, it wasn't that way. Remember the, sto the story? I almost hesitate to use that about Bible accounts because it's more than just a story. But you remember the account of Adam and Eve in the garden? Almost, almost immediately, it seems, at least from the reading of it, they chose wrongly. They chose to rebel against God. They chose to be in an uproar against the Almighty. Adam chose to do this with disastrous, disastrous results for the race, including us, that would descend from him. And within 13 generations following the flood, which was itself God's judgment on people for choosing to go the broad way, within 13 generations from the flood, the whole empire of a man named Nimrod was opposed to God. You can read about that in Genesis the 10th and 11th chapters. Babel, it's called, with reason, because there God confused the languages. But Nimrod and his, his kingdom was, were raising their fists in God's face saying, we will not have you to rule over us. You're not going to be our ruler, our God. Rebelling against God's rule and authority, that was the first of the kingdoms of the earth to do that. Will not allow God to rule over us was the battle cry of those first Babylonians. I think it became the battle cry or the mantra or something of practically every nation to follow. The Assyrians, you can go through history, the ancient Egypt for one. Assyria, we'll come back to these in a moment. Uh, Syria itself. And those nations that were inhabiting the land of Canaan at the time that Israel came marching in to, to defeat them and to subjugate them, to throw them out. Empires such as Persia, modern day Iran that is, Greece, Rome, that seems to be their battle cry. We'll not have him to rule over us. And even more recent national entities such as the former Soviet Union, which has been reduced to Russia, which is trying to become the Soviet Union once again. China, North Korea, many Middle Eastern countries. They obviously reject God's authority. They all obviously have their fists raised in defiance against God. 
It's as if whole nations are on a broad road, like Psalm 1 talks about it, the broad road, like Jesus talked about it, leading to destruction. Going the way of the wicked, that's described in Psalm 1. This attitude toward God and his rule has always existed. But it's been especially pronounced since God announced who his king was going to be. If you know anything about Bible history, you know that God promised David a descendant in Psalm, uh, pardon me, in 2 Samuel, the seventh chapter, verse 16, it's, it's, uh, David rejoices over it in the Psalms that God would be so kind to, his, to him and to his family, but he was promised a descendant who would rule forever there in 2 Samuel 16, 7, 16. And if you look at Matthew's gospel, the first chapter, and read that genealogy, family tree, it's hard to escape the fact that Jesus, born of a virgin uh, from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, that he is not, it's hard to escape the fact that he is not that promised king. He is the promised king, direct descendant of David, traceable right down from David's bloodline all the way. And about this Jesus, whom God announced to be the king, to be the Messiah, the promised one, about this Jesus, the writer to the Hebrews actually quoted these words found in Psalm 2. Hebrews 1, 3 and verses 5 through 6. You are my son. This day I begotten you. So it's obvious who God's choice is to rule the world. God's promised Messiah King is Jesus. The psalmist says that earthly rulers actually oppose God and his son. Back to our passage here in verses two and three, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. It's an opposition to God and his anointed that began very early in more modern history than ancient Israel's and that is during the time of the Lord Jesus. In fact, the leaders of the early church, which was hardly, had hardly come into existence at the time, were praying for strength to withstand the persecution that was coming their way from the political and religious authorities, and they prayed Psalm 2 to describe what was happening. Those leaders, including Pilate and the Jewish leaders, had actions that corresponded to what the psalmist wrote about lifting their fists against God and against his anointed. You can read that in Acts the fourth chapter, verses 25 to 28, a quote from this passage in, second, in the second psalm. Opposition to the rule of Messiah Jesus continued through history from that point on because he'd made his presence known on the earth and that's part of what got him, so to speak, from a human perspective, murdered because he pressed his claims as God's son. This day I've begotten you, you're my only begotten son. Rome and Russia, prime examples of nations that have opposed God's rule and God's authority through his son Jesus. In the 13th century, Roman Emperor Diocletian erected a monument in Spain that proclaimed he had abolished the superstition of Christ and had extended the worship of the gods. Diocletian was known as one of the most bloodthirsty of the Roman emperors in his uh, vendetta against the church of the Lord Jesus. William S. Plummer, quoted by Charles Spurgeon, notes that there were 30 Roman emperors, governors, 
and others in high office who distinguished themselves by their zeal and bitterness against Christ and his followers. In more modern times, the antagonism of the Soviets against the Lord Jesus and against his church is legendary. You may have read or seen a depiction of the Romanian Lutheran pastor, Richard Wurmbrandt, who is the author of Tortured for Christ. He gives ample exa examples of this animosity of a whole government toward God's anointed. And you can't help but wonder where our nation falls in all of this. Laws on our books militate against submission to God and his Christ. Case in point is one that became law clear back in, what was it, 73? Roe v. Wade? What was that law? Sanctioned the killing of ultimately millions, millions of people, unborn babies in the womb. And still there's much to do about this in the, in the day in which we live when some are seeking to at least put the brakes on somehow to all of this. Yet our nation, our lawgivers made the law shaking their fists in the face of God saying you will not rule over us. We have the right to take these lives as we see fit. There's no other way to interpret that but a nation who is right along with the rest of the world opposing the rule of God and his son Jesus. Public government, public government supported schools now are teaching children that God's pattern for male and female roles and functions in society are archaic and to be laid aside. How else can you describe this but government sanctioned rebellion against the Almighty? Saying you'll not be a ruler over us. We don't care that you say you made them male and female and that a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they too be one flesh. We see it this way. I don't care how you look at it. I look at it this way. That's rebellion against God and against his anointed. Followers of Jesus are increasingly objects of scorn and negative bias in our culture. And this opposition to the Lord and his anointed is going to reach a fever pitch in the future when the military forces of all nations are going to be gathered together in the valley of Megiddo. And you can read about that in Revelation, the 16th and 19th chapters. And it doesn't surprise me any, the, the big push to power that is going on in China and over in that part of the world. All has roots in biblical prophecy. Nations will be gathered together in that valley to declare that they will not submit to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They will seek, as the psalmist writes, to destroy all connections to God and his rule. They'll be like a vassal in the Middle Ages who declares to his Lord, you'll not be my master. That's the, the word picture, the language here. Tearing your, their fetters apart and casting their cords from us. No longer am I submissive to you. And it's here that the psalmist records God's laughter. He who sits in the heavens <clears throat> will laugh. But it's not a pleasant sound. You've probably seen that movie, Mary Poppins, when they get uh, infused with the laughing gas, when they go, you know. And some people laugh through their noses. You remember that song? He, 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 ha. How many of you 
It's Kansas, but you read down here. I know you do. <laughs> anyway, ha, ha, ha. That's a, kind of a jolly sound. Ho, ho, ho. He, he, he. <coughs> Excuse me, but it won't be like that when God laughs. That's not the sound that comes out at all. When he laughs, as recorded by the psalmist, it will be sardonic. It's a big word. Here's what it means. Mocking, scoffing laughter. In fact, that's what it says here. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Have you ever been on the receiving end of mocking laughter? You went to high school, you probably were on the receiving end of mocking laughter at one point or another in your life. It's not pleasant, is it? When somebody's laughing at you, not because they're filled with joy at your circumstances, but because they're mocking you. The, in the C.S. Lewis book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, have any of you read that or seen the, the adaptation of it in a film? You can, if you've seen the adaptation on film, you can even visualize this more than if you just read it. The White Witch has lion, the lion, Aslan, who is representative of Christ. The White Witch and her hordes have him bound on the stone table. Are you with me? And they're going to what? They're going to kill him. She's got the knife. And she's approaching him. And in the video representation of this, there are all these really weird creatures laughing uproariously around the stone table. And they aren't laughing because they're rejoicing with Aslan, the lion. They're laughing in utter scorn. And the, the tone that comes through them is this. You're so stupid, lion, Aslan. Why did you think you could escape the white, writ, white witch? You're, so, you're, you're such an idiot. You're so dumb, foolish. That's sardonic laughter. And maybe you've been a recipient of that. Well, God laughs like that in this situation. And it's as if he's saying to the nations, you are so foolish. You're shaking your fist. This is him today. You're shaking your fists at me. You're saying we'll not have to, him to be ruler over us. But it's, I know how it ends. You're so foolish. You're so, you're so, can I use the word? The children are gone. Stupid. You're so, you're such an idiot. You can't possibly win. You don't want God laughing like that at you, do you? The nation shouldn't want God laughing at, like that at them. But that's what his scornful laughter is saying. You'll never successfully oppose me. And he's demonstrated that puny human beings, even whole nations of them, won't win against him. Remember what he did to the aforementioned Nimrod at Babel? They said, you won't be ruler over us. He said, disperse and multiply and fill the earth. They said, we're going to stay right here. You're not going to be our king. And he said, well, yeah. Oh, he probably didn't say that. But what he said was, okay, here, try to understand each other. It confused their languages. And they went to the ends of the earth, like he'd said they were supposed to. Couldn't get along because they couldn't, they couldn't communicate. Remember what he did to the empire of Egypt under the pharaohs, and particularly under one pharaoh during the time of Moses. He said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no, I'm not going to do it. Rebelled against the, the one who is in control of everything. Shook his fist in the face of God. Ten plagues, each one designed to show how anemic and how weak and how literally non-deities uh, non were the gods of the Egyptians. And the result of that, the last plague, 
Israel was let go. Then what happened? Pharaoh's army drowned in the sea. Oh yeah? How can you possibly oppose me? He said that, of the, he did that of the Canaanite civilization, remember? Opposed to God, the, the horrible practices of the Canaanite religion. Um, our, our country and, and the things that are going on in our world today, they, we have nothing that the Canaanites didn't have long before us as far as debauchery and terrible worship, immorality involved in that worship and all the rest. And what happened? God sent Joshua, the exterminator, and he took care of everything in Canaan, at least for a while. So no, no nation can successfully oppose God who sits in the heavens and laughs at the attempts to oppose him. Ancient Assyria, Babylon, Rome, Russia. By the way, if you were alive at the time, Ronald Reagan may have been the instrument, but it wasn't he that brought down the wall. That godless culture, the Soviet Union, it was God that destroyed the wall. He's in control of everything. The one who laughs from heavens. And just why does he laugh like this? It's because there's no such thing as time with him. I like what, the way it's put here. Verse 6, but as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now put this in per, into perspective. When was this written? This psalm was written maybe, well, close to 3,000 years ago, long before Jesus came to this earth, before the Babylonians ruled, and, bef and before them the Assyrians. This was written centuries and centuries and centuries ago. God says, my king I've installed already. He knows how it's all going to end. It's a done deal. That's why he can laugh like this. He knows the end. The poet continues, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you're my son. Today I have begotten you. Remember, speaking of Jesus. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. So whether the heads of state on this earth like it or not, from a human perspective, Jesus will reign. He's already seated as the king. He will reign in the words of Isaac Watts a couple of centuries ago, two or three centuries ago, in that hymn where the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. That's why God laughs like this, because it's a done deal. Now Isaac Watts lived and wrote back in the early 1700s, a more contemporary songwriter, not a hymn writer by any stretch of the imagination, but a great lyricist, Bob Hartman, who was the probably the principal lyricist for the band Petra that was still my favorite band. Um, he wrote this, these words to all the king's horses. Love this. Lifted right out of the book of the Revelation. It's an age-old score that's got to be settled. It's an age-old debt that's got to be paid when the king breaks through in all of his glory to claim his throne and the world that he made. The nations wait with their armies gathered with Jerusalem firmly under their thumbs. There'll be no peace in Armageddon Valley till the trumpet sounds and the cavalry comes. When he arrives, he will conquer them all 
take back the ground given after the fall. On a great white horse, the king will come riding. He's the one they call faithful and true. With his eyes of fire and blood-dipped clothing, he had a name nobody else knew. And by his side ride the armies of heaven, dressed in linen clean and white as the snow, riding down to earth with a vengeance so holy for a one-day battle that will trample their foe. And when the dust and the smoke disappear, the king shall reign for a thousand years. All the king's horses and all the king's men going to ride down from heaven from where they've been. All the king's horses and all the king's men going to put this world back together again. Going to put this world back together again. And the only way it would sound any better is if our friend were over here playing a little bit of a distorted guitar to go along with it. What a great depiction of what is going to take place. I believe not too long from now, seven years, give or take a little and God sees it as a done deal. The psalmist says, God will speak to the rebellious nations in his anger and terrify them in his fury. John the apostle simply writes in the book of the Revelation, and from his mouth, that is Jesus' mouth, comes a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations. God doesn't have to lift a finger against those who lift a fist against him. He just speaks. And it's done. Jesus will rule with a rod of iron, will shatter rebellious nations like pottery. Now, this should give us tremendous theological perspective on the world in which we live. We've got Afghanistan that's in utter chaos today. Iran, China, North Korea, and much of the rest of the world variety of nations in Africa, Europe, Asia, and the Americas, and our own U.S. of A. in various stages of uproar, essentially raging against the Creator. I'd like to ask you, what nation does exist today that is determined to submit to God and His Anointed One, Jesus? I don't know of any. If you know of one, come and tell me later and then I'll amend my message. I don't know of any nation that is determined to submit to God's rule and his authority today. The, kings, uh, the kinds of things that we observe in the world today are gonna continue till Jesus comes riding on that big white horse with the armies of heaven, and then it'll be his very words that destroy his enemies. But until that time, his words to rule, world rulers are gracious. They've got time to change. Listen to these words. Now therefore, O kings of the earth, verse 10, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. He's graciously inviting world rulers, including those who are seated in our nation's capital, to be wise, to heed the warnings, to humbly submit to his rule, even as I speak. Our, our leaders need our prayers. If there is one uh, thing to take from this this morning, because I'm not talking to individuals necessarily, I am, but not about them, their submission to God, but about nations, it is that we need more than ever to pray for our governmental leaders. We watch so much Fox television, 
and a better one, Newsmax. We get so heated up and so angry about things that are going on, which we can do nothing about except pray. And we need to pray when it's obvious that those in control are raising their fists against God, that they might put their fists down and submit to his rule and his authority, first in their own individual lives, and then as leaders of our people, of our nation. Failure to listen to, to him and act according to his will will ultimately spell disaster for any nation. Do homage to the son, the, the psalmist close here, that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. Whatever happens on this old earth in the final analysis, it'll be because he's responding to those who raise their fist, that is he, our God, and his son, our Savior, is responding to those who have raised their fists in, in uh, their positions of authority in his face and said, we'll not have you to rule over us. Failure to bow humbly before the king will spell disaster for individuals as well. I'd be remiss if I didn't point that out this morning. And whether you're an individual or a nation, one thing you don't want to hear is God laughing at you. Because when he laughs at you, it won't be pleasant. This kind of laughter that he, that he is, is going to do is not the best medicine. It won't improve health, not by a long shot. And it won't help fight disease. The way of the wicked, as the psalmist points out in chapter 1, verse 6, will perish. So God help us as we pray for those who have the rule over us. And we pray that you will apply your word to our hearts and lives today, hearing about, hearing about the fact that you see as a, in fact it is a done, but you see it that way as a done deal that your son has been set on his throne on your holy hill. Jesus, even so come, come riding down with the hosts from heaven and bring justice to this world that's sadly in need of it. But until that time, we pray for, for the many who raise their fists in opposition to you, whether it be on a national level, which we see all over our world, or on an individual level, which we see right in our own community, that those who refuse your authority now might humbly come in the words of the psalmist and kiss the son lest he be angry with him come to belief and repentance we need your hand in our world and we long to see that time when everything is set straight even so come Jesus we pray in your name Stand, please. We're going to close out by singing I Exalt Thee.
receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you. 